Hi everyone and welcome to NBTV and this is a really exciting show because it is the end of the year and so we are going to take you back in time. We're going to revisit what happened this year and what lessons can we learn from it. And for this show, I am absolutely delighted to have three of my favorite people in the world joining me. So we have Heidi from Crypto Tips. We have Crypto Jeb from Crypto Jeb and we have Aaron from Altcoin Daily. Welcome to the show guys. It's so wonderful having you here. Thanks, so good to be here. Great to be Thank here, you, Naomi. Yeah. All right. So we're going to dive into this. We have a ton of topics to get through. There were some big stories this year. So what I have done is I have gone and, and these are amazing content creators who've been following this news throughout the entire year. If you are not subscribed to their channels, you absolutely need to subscribe to their channels so you can keep up with all the latest and greatest in crypto. Uh, but I asked them each, what was your, the biggest story of 2021? Every single one of them came up with a different one. So we're going to go through all of these topics uh, one by one and take you back in time and just say, you know, what could we learn from all of this going into 2022? Because I'm sure there are some real hard lessons that a lot of us learnt this year. Let's start off. So Aaron, I'm going to throw it straight to you. Uh, to start off with, you said that inflation was one of the biggest stories of the year. So I'm sure that all of us can agree with that. That money printer was just like, brrr. so walk us through that. Why was that your top pick? Yeah, definitely. Inflation. First of all, Naomi, thanks for having me on. Great to be here. You're a legend in the journalist and crypto space. Uh, I just want to encourage everybody watching this right now, smash the like button. Let me know if you can hear me okay in the chat and uh, tweet this out, guys. This is the biggest end of the year stream mm -hmm. there is. Tweet this out, get all your friends. And uh, yeah, let's talk about inflation. Uh, you know, in crypto and Bitcoin broke through the mainstream in a huge way this year. People like getting cognizant of inflation broke through in a huge way this year. I mean, I feel like in past years and decades, it's really just been like the gold bugs talking about inflation and people really weren't too worried about it. But, you know, it started in 20 uh, or 2008 with the quantitative easing, I think. But really, people this past year realized how much money um, is actually being printed. I mean, the Fed uh, chair went on 60 Minutes and literally said, we can print as much as we need. There is no limit to the amount we can uh, do all we need to do is change numbers in our computer and people are realizing that that's a major problem people are realizing that the dollar is getting devalued and just holding dollars isn't necessarily um you know uh it's it's you know they're almost like stealing from you in a way and uh so just you know the big story with inflation to me is because inflation's always been happening to one degree or another certainly this year but the big story to me was people realizing like mainstream people independent people comedians people who put their, their voices out there realizing that inflation is such a huge problem. And with that, you know, all investable assets should go up if they just keep printing uh, dollars and uh, particularly Bitcoin or things that uh, have a finite supply and finite supply flow. That's what I think. Yeah, I think there's some great points there. I remember I did an interview with Brian Brooks, uh, middle of the year, and he was like, he mentioned some astronomical number, like in the past 12 months, the uh, amount of US dollars in existence increased by like 40%. Like the, we're talking huge figures. Uh, I should have pulled up a chart from, uh, I think it's the St. Louis uh, Central Bank, where it just shows like this lovely little graph, and then you get to like 2020, 2021, and it just like booms. And that's not the, the worst of it, 
because there's also the velocity of money charts where like we still haven't crept up once that money gets into circulation it gets pretty scary what that kind of uh what that can do and how that can damage people's purchasing power um Heidi I'm gonna throw to your you because you I know have a lot of thoughts on inflation as well so was this also a big story for you you didn't choose it but I presume it's on your radar uh, yeah no definitely I figured I was thinking someone else is definitely going to choose this. And so thank you, uh, Aaron. But so, yeah, obviously inflation is definitely becoming much more on topic. And it's always it's something that we've all kind of been, you know, slowly accustomed to over time. Oh, yeah, of course, a, a, a loaf of bread used to cost 10 cents back in the day. And it's so normalized now. But I think that, like you're saying, the uh, the velocity hasn't increased. So even though the numbers of inflation are scary, people aren't necessarily realizing that or seeing it in their daily life, but they will. And those who have invested in Bitcoin or even in precious metals, even though Bitcoin is a better inflation hedge than gold. Yes, I said it. Um, Ooh, <laughs> they're going to be all the more, uh, you know, encouraged to explore cryptocurrency even more because they're going to see that and they're going to be thankful that that other option exists and that they can invest in in something that isn't necessarily controlled by a central bank. So yeah, those yeah, are my two cents. For sure. And Jeb, I'm gonna throw to you for some final final thoughts here. Yeah, well, the thing you guys have to realize is that there is a exorbitant amount of money that has been printed in, in just the last two years because there's this idea that we that central banks have been using for the last two years of quantitative easing. You print money, you stimulate the economy, and then it'll allow the, the economy to continue chugging along. The issue is, as was mentioned earlier with money velocity, it takes time for that inflation to reach all corners of the economy. Think about it from your phone, which has you know a thousand different individual parts. If you work your way all the way back through the supply chain, chain back to when the iron was mined and when the plastic was refined and when you know you did all of the raw resource extraction there's sometimes two or three years of supply chain that goes on in there and it takes time for all of that value change and all of that inflation to move all the way through the supply chain it takes a very long time so you guys have to realize the money that was printed 18 months ago still some of it is not having a full impact on the economy we're going to feel the full impacts of this moving on into the next several years and as we do it's going to give us more and more reason to buy something inflation hardening like this Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. If anyone wants to do some at-home reading, because we like to give homework on this show, um, check out Rothbard. He's written so many books about central banks and how it all works. So go to what has the government done to uh, your money? There's also one that looks at banking history from like, it's like, it goes from like the 1600s to like the mm -hmm. early 1900s. There's some really great stuff there. Kind of give you some perspective of all the havoc that a group of, uh, of people who are unelected bureaucrats can wreak on the economy. So uh, let's change track here. Next story that we brought up, Jeb, you said that El Salvador was the biggest story for you. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a pretty big story. So I'm going to throw this off to you. Why was this your pick? Yeah, so I believe that El Salvador, Nayib Bukele, the president, or as he calls himself, the CEO of El Salvador, adopting Bitcoin in their nation was if not the largest story of the year, absolutely one of the biggest. And the reason is, is because we've been talking about, you talked about book recommendations earlier. I'll give you another one. The Bitcoin Standard by Safadian Amos. It's like the Bitcoin Bible is what people call this book. It's phenomenal. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. And it talks about, the ways that Bitcoin is going to be adopted. And one of the big things, uh, not so much in the book, but that you're going to learn throughout cryptocurrency is that 
there are different eras of adoption in crypto. It actually follows something called an S-curve. So every single major technological development in the history of mankind has followed something called an S-curve, from microphones and cameras to smartphones, indoor plumbings, electri electricity, cars, planes, trains, automobiles, all these, th anything that we use that is technological has gone through an S-curve of adoption. So what does that look like? Well, whenever you see just the, the technology is there, but isn't mass marketed, then you see just a few people buying it. 3D printers are a good example of this. My brother's been using 3D printers for the last six or seven years. Nobody had any idea what a 3D printer was seven years ago when he got into it. He was in something called the innovator stage. He was in the first 1% of people that would ever use 3D printers. He was the first 1% of them that did. What you see happen after that is you move into the next part of the bell curve, the second standard deviation for all the mathematicians out there, that's where you start seeing the early adopters. That's when you start seeing the uh, the explorers, some people call them, the people that really start to experiment with new technology. They're willing to take risk. And that's what all of the people on this panel, and that's what all of the people that are watching this are. Either you are in that early adopter stage or you are in that innovator stage. But the funny thing happens, right around the time you hit 13.5% market penetration, whenever you have that happen, it happened with smartphones, it happened with computers, it happened with planes, everything. When about 13.5% of the population starts using a technology. One in every seven individuals is using it. Something happens and the technology goes parabolic in usage. And one of the telltale signs of that happening in any industry is massive adoption by an organization such as a Fortune 500 company or an international organization such as the IMF or an international or a nation state like El Salvador. Whenever you start to see these different telltale signs of major adoption taking place, it means you're getting very close to something called an inflection point. Once you hit that inflection point, adoption goes parabolic. The reason that I believe El Salvador adopting Bitcoin was one of the largest stories of this year is because it is the biggest reason for us to say that that inflection point is very close. And we could see it happen in just the next two or three years. And once we do, we're going to go from five, six, seven percent of the world using Bitcoin on a regular basis in the same way that people here in crypto do to 50, 60, 70 percent within a decade of that moment. And El Salvador was an early warning sign that that's coming. Yeah, that was like such an epic mic drop rant, Jeb. I got to give it to you. I'm like, I'm <laughs> kind you, of in two minds of El Salvador because on the one hand, it's like volcano, Bitcoin mining. That's kind of epic. <laughs> oh, Bitcoin city. We're yep. going to run this entire thing and it's on volcano energy. It's like, okay, that's also epic. Also first country in the world to adopt it as um, legal tender. So epic. I do feel like people are um, lauding Bukele and saying like, oh, he's amazing i i'm i'm not going to celebrate a dictator i'm sorry these are strong words i know not everyone agrees i definitely don't agree with government mandates and people saying like this is compulsory even if in a tweet he clarified and said no guys in my tweet i definitely won't make this compulsory it's like the law as written literally makes it compulsory article 7 right. so i'm not going to celebrate that but i Absolutely. Like we can definitely differentiate. And I agree with everything you said, Jeb. This is a groundbreaking moment. You know, when we pictured the four horsemen of the fiat ending apocalypse, it was always central banks competing for each other, rushing to add Bitcoin to their reserves. And that has started. That doesn't mean that the, these central banks or these governments suddenly become the good guys. We don't have to start cheering them in particular, but let's cheer the process of hyper-Bitcoinization and all these people getting access to this money without barriers, because that's what's exciting. And I think that's what we can focus on when we talk about El Salvador. But Heidi, I'm going to throw to you for your thoughts on all of this. You are, you're, you're not in the United States. You're not anywhere near El Salvador, but you are a world traveler and you go to a lot of exotic places. Have you ever been to El Salvador? 
I haven't actually. I was hoping to go in September, but didn't quite work out for my where I was traveling from and the restrictions and all that stuff. But uh, it's definitely on my radar. So uh, and there's also surf there, apparently. So <laughs> double need to check that out. But <laughs> I'm glad that you brought up the fact about, you know, the dictatorship and, and really how that bill was passed. Uh, maybe some controversy there. So that's not to be forgotten. But it is interesting to me that they went the route of adopting Bitcoin rather than launching their own CBDC, uh, which is what we're seeing from a lot of other different countries. Also, what the uh, IMF was denying them, you know, assistance because of Bitcoin being you know, unregulated and risky. And uh, they're they're not on board with that, obviously, for probably much different reasons than they're willing to publicize. But uh, so I think a lot of countries are going to see wait and see what happens with El Salvador. And I think that there's plenty more that could benefit from adopting um, a currency, a cryptocurrency rather than, you know, being a slave to whatever central bank they're under. So uh, hopefully this works out well for El Salvador and it'll be just a, a cascade event for other countries as well. Absolutely agree. Aaron, final words on, on this before we move on. Oh no, his sound is Uh-oh. muted. You're muted. That was me. That was You're me. I'm sorry. Sound. Thinking of my first you time. Give me a heart attack. A small country. <laughs> adopting Bitcoin and using it as their money, meaning their McDonald's, their Starbucks, their small businesses have to accept Bitcoin. That used to be moon boy talk. I mean, if you would have said that mm-hmm. two years ago, they would have called you a moon boy. Mm-hmm. They would have called you a, you know, a crazy person. And now it's happening and that's extremely bullish. And I hope we do reach that inflection point that uh, Jeb mentioned. What I would like to see in 2022 is a continuation. So it's not just El Salvador. I'd like to see some other country adopt and hopefully many other countries, because I think mm-hmm. Just like when uh, different businesses that we've seen for the past five plus years, um, you know, accepting Bitcoin, you know, there's going to be some that fall off. There's going to be some that have, you know, not necessarily a great experience with it. So I think, you know, I'm hoping to see a continuation of that. I think if a country, you know, starts using it like El Salvador, and I think we're going to see some fall off in the future. So, you know, the the more the better. And I I would love to see a continuation of that because that's, you know, extremely bullish. Yeah, I completely agree. It's super exciting. And also El Salvador is in this unique position where they were dollarized back in, was it 2001, I believe? So they've been using US dollars since then. So they didn't have any power to give up when they embraced Bitcoin. Most governments are terrified of Bitcoin because they're like, I don't want to give up my money printer. That's how I fund all the wars and get to drop bombs on Syria. So they love their money printers. But El Salvador didn't have a money printer. They're at the whim of US monetary policy. And so it was actually pretty awesome of them to embrace this. And I'm looking at all the other countries who are also dollarized uh, being the next ones to jump on the bandwagon because mm-hmm. it's in their best interest to be looking for sound money, not one that could be inflated away by um, by an elite set of bureaucrats. But let's change topics there. Heidi, you did mention CBDCs, so I'm going to throw it back to you because this was a big narrative of 2021. You have El Salvador on the one end with Bitcoin, but then you have all these countries, the digital Iran, you have Nigeria um, uh, putting out their Inera, I believe it's called. Uh, all of this talk from like UK central bank saying we want to program money so we can control people's financial choices. It's been crazy. Walk us through what we saw and where we are in terms of CBDC adoption. Yeah. So I hope this doesn't get too doom and gloom. Um, hopefully uh, we, can, we can find some silver lining in this somehow. But anyway, yeah, like the first introduction, the first big mover for, for CBDC, uh, 
slightly ironic of their their outlook of currencies, but yet they're the ones pushing hardest and fastest for a central bank digital currency. Um, for me, the scariest part of China's plan for that is they're throwing out ideas like putting expiry, obviously tracking and and uh, you have to be paid in this coin. And uh, the scariest thing for me is, again, with this sense of control is that uh, they can put expiration dates on their coins. So for those of you who, I mean, it means that if you're saving all this money, you can't save it because if they if they're deciding that the economy is going too slow, they they can enact that expiration date on your money and it's worthless. So you have to spend it. So you have to keep working or you have to keep it coming in to survive. And that's a really scary thought. And it's another example of obviously Keynesian economics and not wanting the free market to the economy to expand and contract naturally as it should. Uh, so that's uh, uh, concerning, but also the irony of, you know, all the, all of this um, uh, friction from governments around the world towards things like cryptocurrencies, and yet they're able to adopt their own cryptocurrencies. It's not a cryptocurrency, it's a CBDC. <laughs> and, you know, they don't trust what is open source and transparent that they can fully analyze but they're okay with however they're going to be implementing a CBDC, which is probably going to be closed source, permissioned, uh, highly controlled. No one can, you know, analyze it or pick it apart because it's national security. So uh, the irony between this uh, threat of regulations or concern of regulations and then putting out their own central bank digital currency, if there were cryptocurrencies designed like many of these CBDCs will be, they would never be uh, approved of by these other governments because there's not there's no transparency whatsoever that they're demanding from. So, uh, I mean, I don't, in my opinion, I cannot find a silver lining in CBDCs. The only thing that I can be thankful for is that Bitcoin came first and, you know, uh, the free market and the cypherpunks and what they built voluntarily and they released to the wild to us to enjoy. Of course, governments around and take that same technology and do whatever they're going to do to it. But thank goodness that Bitcoin came first and all these other cryptocurrencies and that there's so much attention on cryptocurrencies thanks to things like inflation. Uh, it's It's a really interesting kind of balancing act that we're seeing from like kind of the pitfalls of one system and the rise of another um and yeah so so thank goodness bitcoin came first and then people can realize that and and escape if they need to to that system and that's usually what happens every time right every time there's a crackdown every time there's a ban uh there's mass uh uh flight capital flight from that country to to bitcoin usually yeah, well, speaking of that capital flight uh, to other countries, I want to go to what's going on in China. So, Aaron, you said that the China China crackdown this year was one of the top stories for you. Similar vein, they also um, adopted a digital yuan, cracking down on Bitcoin as a way to kind of eliminate that competition that Heidi was just talking about. So walk us through what's going on there and what do you think the future holds for crypto in China? China banning Bitcoin mining, certainly a huge story. Just for a little bit of context, it almost seemed like every year in cryptocurrency, we had the China FUD, where it scared the market, <laughs> that China controls too much of the Bitcoin hash rate. China is really in control of Bitcoin. And now 
that kind of China FUD is gone forever, or at least for the foreseeable future. Now, with China banning Bitcoin, you know, if I think a lot of people, the mainstream media took that, and that was maybe the last bit of fear. Oh, you know, China banned it. Is Bitcoin not good? I think uh, what we're seeing now, and inevitably what we saw is there's really three good things that came out of China banning Bitcoin. Number one, it reduced China's ability to influence Bitcoin. In my opinion, that wasn't really that likely to begin with, but it was always a possibility that, a possibility they could try something. And now that they got rid of mining, they have zero chance of influencing Bitcoin from a mining level. Number two, this is great for Bitcoin's uh, carbon footprint. A lot of the way that they mined Bitcoin in China was uh, it was heavily coal powered. And uh, this is really good that, uh, you know, it's just making Bitcoin mining greener. And uh, then number three, there is the question of security. China did control a large portion of Bitcoin's hash rate. And people were wondering, oh, is Bitcoin going to be less secure? First of all, you know, Bitcoin is secured through many different thresholds. And even if Bitcoin were to lose 50% of its hash rate, it would still be very much secure. But what we saw is a dip in the hash rate, and it, I think it's right back up to where it started. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is really good for Bitcoin, in my opinion. I think it's really good for America, where I live, uh, because uh, we're getting more Bitcoin uh, mining. And I think that's, you know, really good. Uh, you know, I think countries should be proud to mine Bitcoin. And uh, but overall, I think uh, China banning Bitcoin mining, I think it was a really good thing. Yeah, I just want to give a shout out to Planeta Tierra. Is that like, is that Terra? Anyway, well, thank you so much for the super chat. That was awesome. Um, so on that note, Aaron, I, I completely agree. It's interesting to see what's going on in, in China, because although all of the big mining operations have left, there's still some people who are trying to make it work. There are some underground players still there kind of holding on. I mean, this is their livelihood. Not everyone has the luxury of just leaving the country. In China, it's an incredibly locked down place. So my heart goes out to all the people who were using this as a way to safeguard some of their wealth. And now it's just kind of been ripped away from them. Hopefully they can they can figure that out because there's a huge difference between the Chinese government and the Chinese people. And I wish all of the freedom enabling tools on the Chinese people uh, that exist. But uh, any other thoughts, Jeb, I'll throw it to you for any other thoughts before yeah. we... Uh no, absolutely. Well, I want to I want to kind of piggyback off of something Heidi said a second ago about Keynesian economics, because that if you want to learn about Keynesian economics, go read the Bitcoin standard. You'll you'll see why that's such a uh, triggering word for me and why I hate that economic <laughs> model. Let me tell you something that China is going to learn that the U.S. Forest Service learned in the 60s, 70s. I forget exactly when it was something the U.S. Forest Service used to do. If you remember Smokey the Bear, like only you can prevent forest fires, right? Well, the problem is if you prevent forest fires for too long, then you get so much dead undergrowth on the bottom of the forest floor that when lightning strikes 30 years later, because there's been no burns, the whole forest goes up like a tinderbox. And the Forest Service thought well, if we just never have any fires, then we don't have to worry about fires. It's great because while we're in office, everybody doesn't want a fire. So we'll stay popular because there's no fires while we're in office. We'll kick the can down the road. And economies, excuse me, governments do the exact same thing. And China's doing that right now with the Bitcoin issue. They're saying, we're going to kick the can down the road. We're going to say, oh, we're going to try and put a lid on this. You can't put a lid on Bitcoin. They've tried. They failed. Bitcoin is here to stay. And China is going to get left in the dust because their CBDC is going to do nothing but stifle economic growth. And Bitcoin is only going to support the company or the countries that have adopted it and the companies that have adopted it. 
And what the Forest Service learned is that if you try and stop a force of nature, like what forest fires are, you'll fail. You can't do it. You can control them. You can guide them. You can direct them, but you can't stop them. And the same thing is true for Bitcoin, because I think Bitcoin has taken on a force of nature property, because whenever you have a more free, sound money come around, especially in an age where information is so prevalently available and so easily disseminatable as we have on the Internet, it's unstoppable. And China is going to find out the same way the Soviet Union found out in 1991. Uh, well, that was a tweetable right there, everyone watching at home. Bitcoin is a force of nature. Don't you forget it. That is why we are all here. Let's uh, let's move on to some players in the industry who've noticed that it is a force of nature and who are diving right in. So Jeb, Heidi, you both chose institutional adoption as uh, as one of the biggest stories of 2021. So Heidi, I'll throw it to you to start off with. Why did you choose that? Um, it's something that I think most of the new the newcomers who are coming to crypto now they get excited with institutional adoption because that means higher prices, uh, more buying pressure. That we're going to go to the universe, like past the moon, whatever. Um, and so that's why I think with institutional investors, we're going to investors entering more and more into crypto. We're going to see a couple different things. Number one, obviously, more regulations. Yes, that means that institutional investors can come in, but that also means that the barrier of entry for you to as a retail investor to buy Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is also probably going to rise unless you know how to use a decentralized exchange. Um, also, we're probably going to see much more patterns that are very, very similar to things like stock markets or more traditional investment uh, vehicles, basically, because uh, they have to take profits at the quarters. They have to pay their taxes and, and whatnot. So. I don't know. It's it's exciting for people who want to see the prices, but it's not like the end all be all survival for Bitcoin. That's that's it. That's it. Right. It's like Bitcoin doesn't need institutional investors. Institutional investors need Bitcoin, period. Uh, they want to stay relevant. Um, and, you know, we saw the crypto ETF come out, but it was or the Bitcoin futures ETF. That's a huge difference. Um, how the SEC wasn't approving a Bitcoin backed ETF, basically, this is a futures contracts backed that allows for a crazy amount of manipulation, potentially. Uh, so, uh, you know, with Grayscale, that's like the closest thing that institutions have now for compared to a Bitcoin ETF. So they've been raking it in. I think I uh, was it. James or Chase, just uh, JP Morgan just bought a whole bunch more Bitcoin through Grayscale. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, it's inevitable, but uh, learn how to use a decentralized exchange if you're a retail investor, because the prices are going to go up. But if you're, you have all these profits and you can't use a centralized exchange because you can't, you know, follow all the CAML rules for whatever reason, uh, you're, you're going to see the other side of that as well. For sure. Jeb, throwing it straight to you for your thoughts on that. Well, I think the reason that this is important hinges and is, found and is founded on a very important truth. The institutions, we don't serve the institutions and we don't serve the government. The government serves us and the institutions serve us. So when the institutions get into crypto, they're getting in because they know that if they want to stay relevant, then they have to get into crypto or they're going to get left behind. I'll cite 
uh, I don't know, the horse-drawn carriage. How many horses are there in America? You know the number of horses in America is down 90% from 110 years ago? Those poor horses got left behind. They lost their jobs because they didn't keep up with the times. I mean, I don't know if there was a way to do so, but these financial institutions are going to have to do the same thing. And for the next 10 years, they might be able to hold it off and say, oh, well, we're not going to accept Bitcoin. We're not going to accept crypto. But eventually, when everybody is using it and your company hasn't adopted it, I'll cite Blockbuster with uh, digital streaming. You're going to get left behind because people are going to adopt it. Now, it is a very important thing for the institutions that they adopt Bitcoin. But at the same time, it's also very beneficial for us that they do as well. Why? Well, for a multitude of reasons. Number one is going to make the market, in my opinion, more stable and less volatile. As you have more people investing in more different parts of the economy, uh, the cryptocurrency economy, I'm talking NFTs, blockchain gaming, metaverse, all these things, but also as they're investing uh, and working with a majority of other companies like PayPal, Venmo, Robinhood, um, you know, all these different companies that have gotten into cryptocurrency, it's going to add in the same way that Bitcoin is decentralized, it has millions of nodes and no single one node can bring down the whole network. As you decentralize where people's interest in the cryptocurrency space is, where it's coming from and where it's going, it makes the market a lot more stable. Instead of Bitcoin dropped 85% in 2018 and that crashed the rest of the cryptocurrency market, now the market is a lot more stable, in my opinion, because it has become much more adopted, not just on the retail side, but also on the institutional side. The other thing to keep in mind is that the institutions even though they do serve the people, do have a vast majority of the wealth in America. The U.S. stock market is worth over $40 trillion. And who has that money? The people that are invested in the stock market? Yes, but guess what? Who manages all those stocks? The big investment banks. So all of the money in America, the, not all of it, but a large majority of it, is in the institutions, the institutions' pocket. It is in the stocks of these companies. It is in their valuation. So as that money is pouring into Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, one, it's going to back up the idea that retail is adopting this because the institutions wouldn't be moving in here if they weren't, if they didn't see value and they didn't see their customer base moving this way. But two, it's going to unlock literally trillions of dollars of investment. We've already seen that. We saw that happen when uh, Elon Musk bought Bitcoin, which I believe we're going to talk about in a second. And we saw mm -hmm. the same thing with the uh, uh, with the uh, ETF futures and uh, with Grayscale and with uh, Bact, which is something people haven't talked about in a long time. Institutional adoption is good for the institutions and it's also good for the people, in my opinion. Is backed still a thing? Because they were like being a thing. It is. It's just thing. very and then boring. They kept announcing <laughs> the things that they're doing, but there was so much PR they around. Here's a product we haven't even built yet. Like I, yep. maybe there'll be a story in 2022. There was such like a, a Justin Sun type like spin story in 2021. I can't even. Anyway, let's move mm -hmm. on to someone who was not a spin story, but who was everything this year. Edge Lord of the year, as named by Time Magazine, <laughs> Elon Musk. So I'm going to throw this to Aaron. This was your uh, one of your top stories. Elon Musk, that, that's the story right there. That's it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Elon Musk is obviously huge, one of the most successful businessmen, uh, a celebrity in his own right for his uh, just intelligence and, uh, you know, just his business prowess. I mean, the thing is, Again, just like El Salvador, Elon Musk buying a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin used to be moon boy talk. Like if you brought that up mm -hmm. two years ago, people would have said like, dude, come on, you're just pumping, you're, you're crazy, you're not being realistic. Well, that was realistic. And, you know, you can say what you want about Elon, you know, he's kind of a troll, but, uh, you know, watch what they do, not what they say. And he's uh, bought over, he bought 1.5 worth of, uh, 1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and he has much more now. He is uh, still holding on to it. And I mean, he was Time Magazine's person of the year. And in his interview, they talked about Bitcoin and Dogecoin seriously. And 
uh, it's just, I think that signals to a lot of people that Bitcoin is here to stay and other people are going to be looking and be like, oh man, should we put Bitcoin on our balance sheet? I mean, Elon Musk has admitted that he personally owns Bitcoin. We know Tesla owns over 1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin and he, and he has said SpaceX owns Bitcoin as well. So, uh, you know, people look to him and uh, that's a really good thing. Yeah, but he's like creating all kinds of waves today. Like Elon, I feel like the crypto community has a love-hate relationship with Elon because one day he's like, hey, you are my children. I love Bitcoin and will embrace it at Tesla. And everyone's like, you're a hero, Elon. We love you so much. Then the next day he's like, ha ha, I checked you. Actually, I'm all for Doge. Bitcoin's never going to make it. I will take that back from Tesla. You cannot have any for your merchant adoption. And everyone's like, I hate you. And people are creating tours of being like the F Elon conference or whatnot. And then Elon comes back, he's like, like, actually, I might add it back for payments on Tesla. Everyone's like, we knew you loved us. Like, and then today he says something else. He's like, nah, don't really get Ethereum. Smart contracts are kind of confusing. And I'm a kind of smart guy, but I really like Doge. And everyone's like, what, what is this man doing? I'm so confused right now. Like, it's confusing. I don't know, Heidi, I'm throwing this to you. Are you confused by Elon? I love him. He's one of my favorite people <laughs> in the world, but I, he does confuse me. Um, yeah, I guess he's the kind of person you have to uh, love to hate, hate to love kind of person in crypto. Um, I agree with Aaron. What you're saying is like he it, he is talking about it. And that does a lot to for Bitcoin. As an investor, you probably like him less, especially if you're in Dogecoin or Shiba Inu or whatever other coin he decides to be, you know, tweeting about that day. Um, I definitely am disappointed in the people who follow uh, their investment plan based on whatever he's talking about. But um, maybe, you know, over time that will fade and, and it'll actually cleanse the space of any one person being able to influence the crypto too much. But it's, it's already been like how, how long with Elon? So I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I think Elon is great. I He's one of the most important entrepreneurs of our generation. He's running all these successful companies. He's taking people to the moon. He's creating self-driving cars that harness the power of the sun. He's like, I mean, he's epic. He's really kind of this hero, this entrepreneurial hero. Um, that doesn't mean he's an expert in every single industry. It just means he's super smart, gets things that other people don't get. Uh, I agree with you, Heidi. Maybe don't base all of your life choices on what Elon does. One refreshing thing I will say is that I love love how, um, how he's not afraid to speak up against the status quo, against the corporate media. Like he doesn't care what they think of him. And it's so refreshing to have someone in such powerful positions in industry just not care. And he, like he's just tweeting out like eggplants all the time. Like he's, I find him hilarious. Thank you, Elon, for being <laughs> hilarious. But Jed, I'm going to throw it to you because I want you to talk about NFTs. NFTs were sure. a giant thing in 2021. That was one of your top yep. stories. Yeah, absolutely. No, NFTs are going to be a 10 trillion, they're going to be a 10 trillion dollar industry. And I really do mean that. And here's why Bitcoin was revolutionary because it was the first example of decentralized digital scarcity in the history of humankind. Until Bitcoin was, was launched on January 3rd, 2009, you didn't have digital scarcity. Like my laptop is scarce. You know, it's worth a certain amount of money because it is difficult to get the resources that went into it. The camera that we're recording on this is the same thing. Its value is derived by how scarce the time and resources that went into it are. But the problem is on the internet, 
if you have a JPEG, you can copy and paste that thing 100 billion times and it costs zero other than maybe a penny of electricity and then the hardware and the infrastructure that's already there. So digital scarcity did not exist before Bitcoin. Bitcoin through its decentralized ledger was the first thing that brought about digital scarcity. Here's why NFTs are important. They are the next step in that evolution. Bitcoin is one network with one coin with one use case and that one thing has digital scarcity. NFTs allow for anything to have digital scarcity. Bitcoin is a trillion dollar industry and I firmly believe it'll be a 20 trillion dollar industry if not more based on today's dollars which obviously aren't going to be worth anything before long but based on 2021 dollars it's going to be a 20 trillion dollar industry and I think NFTs are going to be up there as well and the reason is is because literally anything that you want to have ownership of that you want to have scarcity of that you want to be able to verify that you are actually the one that owned this thing and that you are the only person that owns this thing art is just the most obvious example Anything that you want to have that property, anything, you will want to use an NFT for it. Whether it's physical or online, by the way. Your YouTube channel in the future might be an NFT. Your videos on your YouTube channel might be an NFT. Your Twitter account might be an NFT. The contract for your home might be an NFT. The art that you bought, obviously, that's the most obvious one, might be an NFT. If you bought if you bought a book on Audible, maybe it's an NFT and it comes with a little audio message from the author. There are so many different things that have ownership that we are only going to be able to verify their scarcity because of NFT technology. That's what NFTs do. They take this overarching concept of digital scarcity and they fractionalize it in a way that we can use it for literally anything. It's not just art and funny pictures. That's just the first industrial application of the technology. Every single technology has to find a first industrial application that allows it to reach mass market. NFTs have now done that, and I firmly believe in the next 10 years it's gonna be worth more than 10 trillion 2021 US dollars. Yeah, a lot to dig into there. I just want to give a shout out to IT. I wrote a comment saying, love your work. NB, the blockchain pinup girl. Hmm, that could be an NFT. Well, we'll create that NFT. We've got the first four uh, examples of the NFT right here on this chat right now. A different circle for every one of those NFTs. You'll see them coming to market soon. We're totally going to sell them. Uh, I will say, like, Jeb, on your point, I totally get where you're coming from about the potential of NFTs. Um, so Adam Levine had this great quote about NFTs where he said, the NFTs are these digital locks that unlock something, digital keys that unlock some kind of digital, uh, goddamn, digital key that unlocks some kind of digital lock. And uh, and he said that all we've really figured out how to what to do so far is just paint the key. But there's so much more. There's so much potential. And when you have ownership yep. and that can be transferred in tokenized form, it makes it so much easier to transfer it. You could just have smart contracts, sure, but it gets a lot more cumbersome to figure out how do you transfer ownership of that smart contract. And NFTs kind of solve that. Um, and so I totally agree. Very interested to see what the uh, what the future of NFTs is going to look like there. Uh, Aaron, I'm going to throw to you for some thoughts before we move on to the next topic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I want to, I think what Jeb was saying and what you were saying is spot on. I just want to say that I think NFTs and having some sort of, a, you know, digital verifiability and digital scarcity online. I think that's a natural iteration of where the future is going. It's getting more digital. Uh, I think a lot of NFTs, just like any kind of market, will become overvalued. And I think, you know, maybe NFTs or maybe like altcoins were back in 2017. But that doesn't mean that NFTs are bad um, or going away. I think it's just, I mean, people pay thousands of dollars for uh, cardboard and ink for like baseball cards and stuff. So it's only natural that we're going to have a online version of this. And uh, 
NFTs are so much more than just art or just collectibles. I think we're just in the first inning of this. And I think while, you know, maybe you can say individual brands of NFTs are like Beanie Babies, maybe. I think NFTs as a concept and, you know, the kind of utility and value they'll provide, I think that's a, a natural iteration. So, yeah, they're here to stay. Um, so and it was well, just very, actually... it was just incredibly surprising. Like NFTs were one of the biggest things that happened in 2021. Yep. So, yeah. It's crazy. And it just, they didn't go away. Like I remember talking every single day, we'd be like, oh, NFTs are a thing, here's a big story. And then the next it'd be like, oh my God, here's an even bigger story. And now Snoop Dogg's involved, then a bigger one. Then it'd be like, okay, Paris Hilton has a line. Okay, Melania Trump has a line. Like everyone's involved. And we're just like, by halfway through the year, we're just like, okay, I'm exhausted. What, is NFTs done yet? Are we done with this thing yet? And then by like August, we're like, okay, it's not dying. By December, we're just like, let's embrace our new overlords. It is the NFT overlords. <laughs> And that is the, the reality. The that crypto punks, they own us. <laughs> exactly. We, we are all the naked apes. apes they're the dictators it's... of the world, the bored apes. Excuse me. <laughs> so we'll have to see. We'll make predictions at the end of the show for where we think NFTs are going to be going next year. Are they going to go? Are they going to have like a better purpose? Like we'll discuss. But uh, for now, I want to switch uh, back to you. Actually, I'm going to go to Heidi. So um, uh, Binance, big story. They did a 180 this year. They basically went from total, like, we're decentralized, no headquarter, and we're great, and so much liquidity, and everyone's going to us. And then every country, like, systematically shut them down to the point where now it's mandated KYC all over. Like, they completely, like, I feel like every story each week this year was something about someone going after Binance in some particular way. So walk us back through the history of 2021 and, and what happened there. Yeah, so Binance was kind of, you know, the star of, of crypto. That's where most of the trading volume was happening. It is obviously a centralized exchange, minimal KYC. Uh, you just need an a email address to do crypto to crypto. Um, so it was very friendly, very easy for people to use. Obviously, maybe some people were taking advantage of that. But this concept of for a centralized exchange to get that much attention, that much profit, you know how much money they're making daily off of their trading fees from like, they're the number one exchange for most trading pairs happening. And uh, so that obviously got a lot of attention and governments were saying, hey, oh wait, we can get a piece of that. So they started clamping down one after another, obviously. Uh, the UK, Canada, uh, uh, Thailand, basically everywhere. Um, and so now, like you said, they've done a complete 360. And I think that should be the main takeaway for anyone trying to build anything in this crypto space, that if you want to be a part of this disruptive technology and actually make a real difference rather than turn into more of the same, you're going to need to be decentralized. You can't have a, a really outspoken CEO. You can't you can't have someone who wants to get all the glory because that's a person that's going to crumble uh, under the pressure for regulations and whatever. So um, unfortunately, I think Binance is just going to be more of the same. I don't think it's going to fail or anything. I think uh, plenty of people are still going to be using Binance, but it's not going to be what it was. And I'm really interested actually to see what this will do to Binance, their decentralized exchange, because I know that basically mm -hmm. every uh, node running that decentralized exchange or that network, it has ties back to Binance. So that'll be interesting to see how that could play out. But um, I think in the long run, whether people take that seriously or they're going to be learning lessons is that 
decentralization is where it's at in, in a successful project in cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, the guy, the, the CEO of Coinbase said if he could do it all over again, he'd, he'd do it decentralized. So what else could, yeah. could, he hear, could he want to hear from that? But so... Yeah, um, unfortunate with Binance, but, you know, and because the guy, he was CZ, he was pretty innovative, uh, you know, the different investing options that they have and the lending tools and the staking, wherever those profits were coming from. Uh, <laughs> so uh, not a lot of transparency there, but yeah, so Binance basically was like the the darling of cryptocurrency for so long. And now people are getting smacked with KYC. They didn't, they haven't had their account haven't accessed their account in months, maybe, then they're logging in and they're saying, oh, you have to go through KYC. Uh, I think that people can still withdraw their coins. So like they're not holding them hostage necessarily, but uh, yeah, I think um, it's it's to be expected with anything that has a CEO and they're trying to be disruptive or make too much money basically. Yeah, I think that on that note, Heidi, the most interesting thing for me about Binance is the decentralized aspect. And I do wonder if they're going to dig into that now that they're getting so much uh, regulatory scrutiny and pressure. It's what Shapeshift did. Shapeshift was just like to hell with all these regulations. We like we don't want any part of it. We don't want you to control this beautiful thing we've created. We're going to completely decentralize our company out of existence. Another huge story of 2021, kind of the opposite of what happened to Binance, where they're getting more KYC, more regulatory scrutiny, getting a centralized headquarters that they've never had before. Meanwhile, Shapeshift is just kind of going, ah, oh, we're just going to be a DAO and there's nothing the government can do about it. And Eric Voorhees has spoken extensively about that. Like if you're going to regulate a DAO, which part gets regulated? You know, is it like individual developers? Because I'm pretty sure that's like freedom of speech, writing code right there. Or is it going to be users of this? Like, I mean, how are you going to even, um, how are you going to enforce that, right? You, you have to go after intermediaries. If there's no intermediary, there's no clear way for the government to actually control DAOs. So DAOs may be the last uh, like big story, I think, of, of 2021, some interesting things happening there. But just on the um, Binance cracking down surveillance side of things, KYC, I want to cover a few privacy stories from this year. Uh, uh, crypto beat as in cryptocurrency, but also cryptography, because that's how we roll on this channel. So um, this perpetual surveillance state that we've seen just get larger and larger over the last year. We've seen this in the crypto space as well. We've seen it with the KYC, the cracking down. We've seen it with Gensler and the SEC cracking down on all of these uh, ICOs and all of these different coin offerings and everything. We've seen just more and more scrutiny. Um, we've had the IRS has new divisions that are scrutinizing crypto. We have uh, the Treasury Department setting up like divisions that scrutinizing Monero and really digging into that sort of research. Like there's so much surveillance of the crypto space. I wonder how that's going to affect things going into 2022. That's a question I want to throw to the group. Like I... I see technology as perhaps, you know, it, it's neutral, right? It can take us in two paths. One of them is that you have the governments using technology to spy on us and the spying gets more pervasive and the surveillance, it, it creates this crippling state where people can't express themselves anymore because they're just being scrutinized all the time. Uh, but on the other side of things, technology empowers people. It gives them a way out. It gives them a way to shield their conversations and to end encryption. It's a wonderful thing. Like, do we, are we bullish in terms of like personal liberties and individual sovereignty going into 2022, given this trajectory of more and more encroachment? It's, or is that just going to push people further into the decentralized world? People just going to say, to hell with this. You know, I opt out. I'm going to go the, the decentralized route and opt out of this system altogether. Like it could go either way. Aaron, I'm going to throw it to you to start off with bullish or, or bearish on, in, on individual liberty. I mean, I'm bullish on it. I think it's really important if we're going to get that in 2022. I don't know. 
I don't think that's the most important for people uh, at this point in time. It might get worse before it gets better, just being real. But I mean, I certainly think that's important. I, I think I think a lot of people in the know in crypto are looking at like ZK snarks and ZK roll up type cryptocurrencies where uh, privacy is embedded. Um, and yeah, that's that's kind of what I think. I don't know. Yeah. Jeb, what are your thoughts? Bullish or bearish on uh, people getting more individual liberty 2022? Well, just for I mean, a real I'm... downer to end the show. How bearish are you about this devastating state of affairs? Well, well, you said it, Naomi. You know, I'm a technical analyst. So what I do is I look at trends and I assume that they continue until I am proven wrong. And uh, the trend for the last 150 years has been more surveillance, more government overreach, more government oversight. You know, the U.S. didn't actually have a federal didn't have a federal income tax until uh, the Civil War in the 1860s. And by the way, we did pretty well for ourselves without that. And now it's up at like 42 percent high uh, uh, total marginal. The the fact is, governments move in a direction of more centralized or more decentralized. They generally move in a direction of more of more centralized. But there are examples in history where they've moved in the direction of being more decentralized. The Holy Roman Empire is a good example of that. The United States and the entire global, every single nation on planet Earth right now, you could argue, is moving, unless it's in, you know, it's war-torn in civil war or something, is moving in the direction of becoming more centralized. And whenever a government becomes more centralized, it naturally seeks power. And this is one of the things that I want to say it was John Locke talked about is that the government is not served by the people. The government serves the people. The government is elected by the people and the government is here to protect the people. The government is not here to tell us how to run our lives and the government is not here to try and protect us from ourselves. That is what individual liberty is about. But the issue is the government forgot that because it's a three trillion dollar a year company that has the ability to put you in jail if you don't agree with it. So as Aaron said, eventually I think it's going to get better. But as we've seen countless times in human history, and I'm not going to go into details because, you know, YouTube has its policies about, you know, not talking about uh, violent conflict and whatnot. As we've seen many times in human history, governments tend to go tyrannical before they end up becoming more free. That's what we saw mm -hmm. in, the, in the Revolutionary War in the United States. That what we, that's what we've seen in plenty of other nations around. And that's exactly what I think we're going to see here. I think we're going to see people, I think we're going to see governments continue to power grab, power grab, power grab, because everybody thinks, okay, well, if the government wants to take care of me, sure, I'll give up my rights. And we've given up a lot of them. So, no, I don't think it's going to get any better. I think it's going to get a lot worse over the next 10 years. But hopefully the next decade following the 2030s will be better. Wow. So, Heidi, can you shed any light on this? Or, like, are you just like, nah, Jeb's, Jeb's right. He's, we got to, like, hold on tight, kids. Like, we're in crypto, not for the, the gains and the, the moonshots. I will say crypto, is the, crypto is, the best, is the best tool we have against it, though. I will say that. Well, I agree. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Heidi, I'm going to throw it. Even if you're going to have bad news, still tell us, tell it, just tell us straight. I think I found the silver lining. Okay. So there is one. Change, <laughs> things change generationally, right? So we have kids in college now who are taking courses, learning about blockchain tech, learning about cryptography and cryptocurrencies. And those are the people who are going to see us and, and our older generation suffer from whatever we're about to go through. I mean, in that regard, I do agree with uh, Adam, or, I'm sorry, Aaron and Jeb. It's gonna get bad, but it, there will be uh, a new birth in, I think, attention to this. And uh, yeah, I think I think uh, there's hope with the younger generations, right? That's, what, that's the classic line. 
<laughs> I, I listen, I'll take it. I'll take it, Heidi. Hope with the younger generation. All right. So here's what we'll do because there's a lot of doom and gloom here. And I, I agree with it. It's scary out there. Things are going in a certain tra trajectory. Governments are clamping down even more. I will just mention like Amir Taki. Do you guys, do you guys know Amir? You guys, all right. Amir is like an OG crypto guy. He like created Dark oh. Wallet with Cody Wilson. He created Dark Market, which was the precursor to um, uh, to Open Bazaar. Fun fact: I was actually at the hackathon. I think it was 2014 where he won the the hackathon with uh, Dark Market. He's like a, just such an interesting guy. Anyway, recently he put out this manifesto, the most cyberpunk thing I've read in a long time, where he's saying, "Listen, the world is splitting in two. Is splitting into RegFi and DarkFi, and hold on tight because." it's a giant battle and i agree with that i think we have this regulated finance that has all the teeth taken out of it and completely defeats the purpose of what crypto is which is meant to be an alternative to the forced monetary systems that's thrown onto us and, and mandated by governments or we can embrace this decentralization and things are just going to move underground and we're going to end up with this parallel economy and it's just going to get more and more uh it's going to get stronger and stronger i i think that's even though it seems dark, I actually think that agorist way of thinking is really exciting because we have never before had a money that couldn't be shut down by government. And we've had alternative currencies before and the government's just systematically shut them down because they could. Finally, we have one that is not centralized, is completely decentralized, can't be shut down, has no intermediary, there's no CEO you could throw in jail, there's no single server you can unplug. So like that choice is there the genie is out of the bottle like that's exciting i think that it's going to take time and yes government's going to get more tyrannical i completely agree with all of you and your darkness and brooding um the government is going to crack down more but we have an alternative now and that is giving people back freedom and sovereignty over their individual and that's exciting i think it's cool so just to kind of on an upbeat note i'm going to go through each of you ask biggest predictions for 2022 we've seen what the trends were for 2021 some say it was like the year of regulation some say it was the year of like froth and weird ass expensive purchases that perhaps people shouldn't be making what's 2022 so aaron i'm gonna start with you okay i think i'm pretty bullish on 2022 for cryptocurrency it would have been nice this year if we had a big blow off top at the end of the year and we could all take a year off but uh that didn't happen and that kind of like newness and uncertainty that's pretty exciting that we're going into seemingly the four-year cycle is broken maybe we'll see if it tops out in the next couple months but uh, i'm pretty bullish on 2022 my predictions uh, i think bitcoin stays number one by market cap i don't think the flipping happens uh this year or uh, at all, that remains to be seen. But I think Bitcoin stays number one. I think Ethereum will stay number one for open source DAP platform, although I do think its market share will continue to bleed out to the Solanas, the AVAXs, the other you know, more centralized entities, especially if retail is continuing to come into the market. And they, they don't care about the ethos necessarily of decentralization. They just want to be able to do things uh, mm -hmm. cheap and, and, and user-friendly. Uh, I would say Bitcoin... I think NFTs at some point, uh, people are, you know, people are going to lose interest in a majority of the projects that people aped into this year, and it'll cause some uh, disheartened feelings in the NFT market. I, I guess I'm pretty bullish on uh, a lot of cryptos, though. I, I think Bitcoin, uh, who knows where it could be? I, I, I thought it would be over $100,000 this year. I could see it hitting, you know, it's definitely going much higher, in my opinion. I think Ethereum is going much higher and quality altcoins are, are going much higher, especially because this is the first cycle where people aren't trying to trade to fiat. Every other cycle, 
Uh, in my opinion, many people have been like, well, I just don't want to be the last person to sell. This is the first cycle where people realize that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is here to stay. And in that, I think uh, there's plenty of opportunity, not just in 2022, but in the decade of 2020. Absolutely. I want to read out a super chat from the chat. So a huge thank you to Lord Pepsi. We have a Lord in the chat. Thank you, Lord Pepsi. He says, we already live in a parallel economy. Referred to the interest rate apartheid M. Kaiser speaks on. Thank you so much for uh, your chat there. And everyone, just take this moment to smash the like button uh, for tuning in. We still got a, a couple more things to, to chat about, but hit that like button. And then afterwards, make sure you check out the channels of this other wonderful people. I'm going to throw it to you, Jeb. Thoughts for 2022. Where are we, go where are we heading? I think the two things you need to look at is China and the federal and the U.S. Federal Reserve. And the reason is China has built a giant balloon economy and it is going to pop at some point in the 2020s. I'm pretty confident that it's eventually going to burn itself out and it's going to go through a massive economic recession. It's going to cause the rest of the world to go into one. And it might be the thing that triggers that. I don't know what's going to happen in 2022. I think it will happen this decade, though. It built its entire economy off of um, infrastructure building. They ran out of things to build. Now they're building useless infrastructure all around the planet, trying to keep their their, um, their uh, construction economy running, they're going to run out of steam and they're going to crash. And when they do, um, hopefully the rest of the world will stop following their lead into the, into the authoritarian surveillance state that we talked about earlier, because right now that's what a lot of them are doing. They're taking China's lead. And when they see China fail, hopefully they'll start taking America's lead again. The second thing is that you need to be paying attention to the U.S. Federal Reserve um, quantitative easing and, 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 and uh, interest rates. Because the last two years, ever since March, when the entire global economy collapsed following you know, Saudi Aramco and Russia and everybody uh, tanking the oil prices, and obviously the thing that shall not be named on YouTube happened. Um, the U.S. Federal Reserve is hopefully, anyway, going to start um, uh, uh, pulling back on the quantitative easing, so the bond buying and the injection of liquidity into the U.S. economy, and hopefully we're also going to see the federal funds rate increase. That would be healthy for the U.S. economy, but when it does, that means they're going to stop pouring gasoline on a fire that's about to die, and then the fire is going to start dying, and everybody's going to say, oh, no, the fire's dying, and we're going to say the fire should have died a long time ago. The fact that it's still going this long was the mistake. So we should have went through a recession a year ago. I'm not saying it's going to happen next year, but I, I am saying pay attention to the Federal Reserve because if you want to know when a recession is coming, paying attention to China and the Federal Reserve are the two things that's going to tell you that. I wonder if it's a recession though, Jeb, because like they keep kicking the can down the road and it gets to a certain point where it's no longer going to be a recession. It's going to be like an epic meltdown crash. That's true. That's apocalypse. true. Yeah, you might be right. Like, Maybe. Yep. I mean, or they, if they can prolong this for a long time, that you have all these Austrian economists who've gotten the timing wrong mm -hmm. for a really long time, who've been calling mm -hmm. it. The reason why it didn't happen in 08 is because the government was literally paying banks not to release the money that they're you know, printing yep. and injecting straight into us. So you didn't get that velocity of money. But like things are so different this time. Like, I, I, is anyone's guess where this is going? But Heidi, uh, well, before I go to you, I do, do want to read out. We got another super chat from Exciting World Cryptos, which is JR. Thank you so much for tuning in. He says 2022 will be interesting for everyone. Can't wait on your feedback for what is to come in the new year. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being here and uh, for everyone being here. So Heidi, final words, where are we headed 2022? Yeah, I agree actually a lot with what Aaron said. I think Bitcoin is going to keep staying number one. I think 2022 is going to be the year that we finally figure out if we are still in the four-year cycle or if we're in that mystical super cycle and the bull market just keeps on going. And uh, yeah, it was actually pretty... Uh, comforting for me to know that you guys also are kind of looking forward for a bear market so you can like take a breather because it's feel like it's been a marathon as a youtuber but um <laughs> also to pay attention to like decentralized stable coins 
um, and also stable coins that maybe aren't necessarily pegged to the value of a fiat currency. Um, that could be the year of 2022 where people start valuing things in terms of Bitcoin rather than in terms of US dollars. That would be interesting. Hmm. And we have a question from the group as well. I didn't forget Kona Klaas. I was about to get to it. My God. I was wondering so if you'd forget demanding. that. <laughs> so demanding. All right. So a uh, question that he asks is, do you predict a coordinated confiscation of Bitcoin in the coming years, like gold in the US or the 1930s? I mean, when you have a physical asset like gold and you're literally storing it in a bank, it's pretty easy to say bank no longer let people access their gold or to have people come to your house and take it. If you're asset is intangible and can be memorized with something you can keep in your head. I mean, it creates so many obstacles to confiscation. It doesn't mean that the government won't try. It doesn't mean that they won't put out a blanket ban and say, hey, this is the end of crypto. We're shutting this down. But can they succeed? I mean, have they succeeded in China? Absolutely not. I think if anything, it's pushed the people more towards cryptocurrency and realizing how uh, freedom enabling that tool is. When you have a government who's tyrannical and saying you cannot let your capital leave this country, you put it into crypto and suddenly you found a safe haven for it. I don't think that's disappearing. The people have gotten a taste of that and they understand the freedom that that enables. That's my thought. But um, I, maybe the other, the rest of the group has anything otherwise uh, to say. Otherwise, we will we'll wrap it up there. Any final thoughts, y'all? Jeb, ch ch wrap us up there. Study the war on drugs. Banning the unbannable doesn't work and it makes your government less scary. Reduces yeah. your authority. <laughs> war on people and, um, oh my gosh just yeah, you know real. every year it's it's always a possibility that the government could ban bitcoin but every year that that doesn't happen it makes it less likely and i do yep. think we're reaching some sort of uh cultural and society inflection point we're reaching that threshold where it's you know politicians own bitcoin or bitcoin proponents cities own bitcoin or bitcoin proponents and i think at a certain point it becomes very unpopular to uh, to do something like that. So uh, I think it's still possible, very unlikely, and each year that passes less and less likely. Yeah, absolutely. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up there, guys. This has been a fantastic stream going over, taking us back through time, 2021, all of the trials and tribulations that have that have come our way and uh, pretty interesting insights for 2022. We'll have to see what happens. We have to make this a yearly thing as well. Let's just get together. Yeah, we'll just chat about it, how how our predictions go. But thank you, everyone, who uh, tuned in today. Make sure that you hit that subscribe button. Make sure you hit the like button before you head off. Make sure you check out the channels of all these wonderful people we have on our show here we have heidi from crypto tips we have jeb from crypto jeb, jeb. and i can't say his name without saying crypto jeb he's he is crypto jeb not just jeb uh we have aaron from altcoin daily uh, you guys are awesome i love your channels thank you for putting out such great work that educates people and thanks everyone for watching today have a wonderful rest of your 2021 we will see you next year for any more shenanigans <laughs> bye guys I her anyway, sorry. Bye, guys. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.